Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 11 of Attitude Check, the business leadership podcast. I was telling Brent a little bit about this before the podcast, but I learned something really interesting that I wanted to share with y'all. And it was essentially an equation. And this equation was event plus attitude equals outcome. So if you have some sort of huge event, whether it was good or bad, the attitude that you have about that event is going to equal the outcome. So if it was a great event, but you have a bad attitude about it, then there's obviously nothing good that's really going to come out of it. But if you go through something that's really rough and you have a great attitude, you're positive, you're looking forward and you're looking back on the things that you can learn from that, that event, then there's going to be an incredible outcome. The mentor that shared this with me kind of called me out on some of the things that I've been wrestling with. And as soon as he shared that with me, it immediately changed my perspective on that event. And I really love how that's in an equation form just because it really breaks down that concept into kind of bite-sized pieces to understand. Uh, one of the podcasts I listen to is by uh, a man by the, that goes by Jocko Willink. And Jocko, he's an ex-Navy SEAL. Uh, some people might think he's a little bit you know, too much on the military side or meat heady for lack of a better term, but he has a really popular video on YouTube. I highly recommend you check it out. And it's just entitled Good. So the theory behind that is I didn't get the promotion I wanted. Good. It's just another opportunity to learn and improve your skills. You know, I didn't get the grade I wanted. Good. Just find the good in every situation. Find how you can improve every situation. And at the end of the day, you'll find out that you benefited from it. On this episode of the podcast, we have Lauren Hug as a guest. Lauren is very involved with the Colorado Springs community. But her field of expertise is centered around communications and public relations. But her background on how she got there is a little bit different than you would expect. Um, she actually has a law degree through a series of events, which you'll learn about. She decided to get out of that. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode of Attitude Check. Endeavor to challenge yourself every single day. Engage with your community. Effect change and produce impact. I'm John Mark Radspinner. And I'm Brent Sabati. And this is the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We have the conversations that young professionals should be having but aren't. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attitude Check, the Business Leadership Podcast. Today we are so excited to have Lauren Hug as a guest. Lauren is the principal and founder of Hugspeak Consulting. So to start out with a quick icebreaker, Lauren, what's a show that you watch on Netflix and tell us a little bit about it? So I just watched the Fire Festival documentary. It's amazing. Everybody should watch it because it's all about kind of social media in our world now and how you can create something that doesn't even exist. If you get enough influencers, enough people talking about it, people will go ahead and buy it. Even when somebody is, there was somebody the whole time saying, this isn't real, this isn't real, look at it, and people just totally ignored it. So it's a fascinating documentary. So kind of piggybacking off of that, what's one lesson you would say that people should take away from the whole fire festival and what it meant on media and social media and marketing and all those sorts of things. I think that we all need to be a lot more purposeful about how we use social media and recognize that even though it's just a click, the fact that now it's showing up in somebody else's feed and it's coming from you, um, somebody they trust, gives it more credibility than it would have otherwise. So that our activities need to be a lot more purposeful and meaningful when we interact in these spaces because they have impact. Um, and the more it comes from somebody that people know, the more they think it's real. We, we haven't really thought a lot about that as a society, but we're going to need to a lot more. <laughs> Lauren, you have a little bit of an interesting background. So you started out in law, correct? Yes. And yep. then you kind of transitioned. So tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get to where you're at? 
What were some of like the ups and downs and the adventures that you had throughout that time? So, well, I started actually with PR as my undergrad degree and then worked in branding and strategic marketing for a little while right before I went to law school. I went to law school, got an extra law degree because it sounded like fun, and then decided I didn't want to practice law in big corporations, big corporate law firms. So I ended up back in business consulting, doing a lot of qualitative research, so really listening to people and trying to figure out what makes them tick, why they think um, this color is better than that color, I mean, all sorts of things, naming, um, ad campaigns, just listening to people all across the country. Then I you know, needed more flexibility. I figured out that I don't like being in the same place every day. <laughs> I don't really like having a boss. Uh, so I, I, and I, and I was, I was going to have a kid. So I was like, okay, how can I still work and have time to be with my child? And I ended up sort of cobbling together law, marketing, and public speaking coaching all at the same time, just all based on various things I'd done over the years and various networks I'd built over the years. Never really thought much about any kind of strategy overall about what my business would look like. I'm like, oh, I can do that. That sounds like fun. Sure. I can help with that. Sure. I can do that. And before I knew it, I had built three high school speech teams that we were all practicing together and a law practice and was still doing marketing projects. Um, but when I moved to Colorado Springs, I sort of looked at it strategically for the first time and said, okay, really what I most love doing and what's the easiest way to grow a business was the marketing, for me, marketing side of things or communications. So what has been your journey within Colorado Springs? Like since you moved here, what has been your experience and how, what are some of the different like highlights of your time here? I moved here without knowing anybody. <laughs> so I met people through Twitter. I love Twitter, <laughs> um, and very quickly learned um, a lot of things about the community, partly because the fire at Waldo Canyon Fire happened, and the community really came together uh, in digital platforms to help um, source the firefighters to replace things that had been lost in fire, like all sorts of things were happening in the digital space. And I think that was the first time they really understood that this the world was different now, because all these strangers who would never have met each other um, in real life, we're coming together across the community to do something good. And so I became really interested in that whole phenomenon, like how we use digital channels, why we use digital channels. And that I realized that there was a, a gap here. There weren't a lot of people doing that for businesses. Um, I came from Austin where that was kind of typical. And here it was more of a new concept. So I ended up becoming known for doing digital, which isn't even really my background, like academically or business-wise. But seeing that gap in the market, filling that gap um, from a strategic communication perspective, and then sort of teaching people how to implement digital strategies. And from that, <laughs> I somehow ended up in like community relations, which to me is really what digital has enabled. It's taken mass marketing and put it back to that one-to-one -one communication level. So all of those strategies now really have to think about humans and how humans interact. And that led to things like the District 11 Millevy Override Campaign, which is just a complicated way of saying how we fund our schools. Um, and then also District 2, which was a bond campaign, another way we fund our schools to get the community to recognize that need. Now I'm like, what's next? Because any we can do anything if we really can explain why it matters and we empower people to have a voice, especially people that don't feel like they have a voice currently. When most people think about law school and being you know, an attorney and things like that, they think of a very straight-laced, uh, follow-the-rules kind of mindset <laughs> for the profession. So what are some of the biggest takeaways that you brought with you from, you know, your background in law school and even PR and moving into the digital marketing space and uh, 
communications and community relationships? It's a really good question. Um, law school, it definitely, depending on the kind of law school you go to, you get a lot of type A, very rule following. This is how you do it. But you're also taught to think about multiple solutions to problems or all the different sides because you can't you can't try a case if you don't understand what the other side's going to say or can't anticipate what the other side's going to say. You get this kind of analytical approach of if this, then that. It also matters how you can persuade people. So I think the thing that I, I learned most in law school is it really does matter how you, you have to know who you're talking to and you have to know what you're trying to accomplish. And it's different when you're talking to a judge versus a jury versus a client Um, because they're all going to need to have the same information conveyed in a way that makes sense to them. Um, So when people ask me, like, how do these things go together? To me, they all make sense. Marketing, community relations, any of them, it's about people and how, how do you understand them and, and really check your ego at the door so that you, you aren't trying to overlay your worldview onto them. And I, I say all the time, like, I hate arguing. Arguing gets nowhere. Arguments don't really work. They're about proving facts People aren't persuaded by that. They're persuaded by being heard first, hearing their own objections and having those answered. Uh, Because you might have the most amazing fact list, but if that doesn't address the concern of the person you're talking to, it's not going to matter. So you have to figure out what makes them think through the process. So like, it's all about how people work and being willing to really listen to them first. So listening is a huge part of it. Yes. Um, Did you find that asking certain types of questions was also a good way of persuading and helping people to come to their own conclusions to... Yes. Like, they talk, in law school, they talk about the Socratic method, um, which is just a series of questions, open-ended questions that lead people to a conclusion. Um, but what most lawyers do is what we do in cross-examination, which is closed questions, right? Leading the witness. Isn't it true that? Didn't you... Why did you think this? Or, you know, those kinds of things instead of, hey, I'm really interested in your opinion. <laughs> why don't you tell me what you think? So learning the difference between those open-ended questions that really invite people to open up versus questions that assume a conclusion. Uh, you know, didn't you love that restaurant? Doesn't really invite somebody to say, actually, I hated it and I never want to go back. I think the more people can understand that invite people aren't often candid. I mean, there are certain personality types that are always candid, but most people are very polite and will go along with what they seem to be suggested. That kind of open-ended question and safe space too, like really creating a safe a space where people can say what they think for real, knowing that it's not going to be used against them. That's hard. I mean, almost every feedback mechanism we have uh, in, in organizations does not take that into consideration enough. So as uh, if there's a business leader out there or someone who wants to go into leadership, whatever level, big or small, what's something that you would recommend to kind of foster that safe space and foster the people's belief that their leader will listen to them with at least minimal judgment and really consider what they're saying? So this sounds self-interested, but I think you have to have a third party. I think you really do have to recognize that no matter how much you try to create that space, if you're the CEO and you get to decide who's going to stay and who's going to go or who's getting a rate, I mean, like, it's just going to be really hard for people to be very candid in those circumstances. So creating uh, anonymous channels or channels where the feedback would be reported anonymously, somebody might know who it is, and and just check checking the temperature regularly and not like doing it as part of a performance review only or in spaces where there is some sort of outcome tied to the feedback 
feedback directly. So it's just, it's thinking through kind of what are the barriers to somebody speaking up, sharing their thoughts. And even something as simple as if you're doing it in a, in a group, people that like introverts aren't going to speak up. They're going to listen and they'll think of something or they'll know what they're thinking, but they'll think they'll want to talk about it a day later. They're not just going to shoot right off at, as soon as the question's asked. And so knowing that that conversation is going to be dominated by the people that answer quickly versus the people that are thinking it through and either calling out introverts or or coming up with like a follow up conversation. So just thinking about how people are inclined to give feedback anyway, plus the reasons why they might be afraid to do it. It's just and every organization is going to be different, but being open to it's the start. Jumping back in time a little bit, on your LinkedIn page, it says you attended the University College of London. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about that experience and you know if you took any kind of key lessons from it, I guess, as far as having a different cultural context or just some fun memories from uh, your, your time there. I loved that year in London. Um, I was in an international program. So my classmates were, it was international human rights, comparative constitutional law. So these were lawyers from all over the world um, looking at how to make legal systems better or, you know, why this constitution does this thing, what this constitution does. And of course, there was lots of nationalistic pride of, well, my country's better than your country and here's why. Very, very interesting stuff. But uh, the thing that, and I think that really opened my mind, like there are a lot of different answers to how we approach living in community, regulating our communities, deciding what matters, what we incentivize, what we criminalize. If you haven't seen another way of doing it, like an entire other country functions with a complete, not completely different rule system, but things that we think are obvious aren't even on the radar over here and vice versa, that, hey, maybe we need to think a little bit more broadly about how we solve our problems or what's important. Um, but the funny, like, honestly, the funniest thing about University College London is that they're, so in America, we study mill in utilitarianism. Like we always talk about John Stuart Mill as a utilitarian in philosophy. But he was a student of an English philosopher called Jeremy Bentham. And we don't really talk about him in America, but there, Bentham is like a common name. And he is actually in a case, he himself is mummified and is in a glass cabinet. Oh, a literal case. A like. literal <laughs> glass cabinet at University College London. Since you were talking about law, I was thinking like he was in a, a, no. a case for law. <laughs> no, like an actual cabinet with glass that you can go visit. And he's sitting there holding his staff. And I just rounded the corner one day and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> And there he is. And and there and like he gets on conference calls with Bentham study, like Bentham students throughout the world every year or something. I mean it's fascinating. But it, one of the things he wrote about was that he um he he wanted to be one of the first public autopsies and he had this whole because he was like seventeen hundreds or something, and he had this whole philosophy that was very different from the standard thinking at the time. Um, one of his famous essays is Uses of the Dead, and he thinks you should, like, stuff them and sit them in corners or use them as statues. I mean, it's, like, it's, yeah. He's also, <laughs> the uh, like, the coiner of the term panopticon, which was a, he used it for prison or for, what were the two things he could prison or something else? And it was a space where everybody could be watching what everybody's doing. And a lot of people will refer to that now as what we have with our digital world because we're all watching all the time, recording all the time, everybody. So if you ever see that term pop up about we now live in a panopticon, that's Jeremy Bentham. <laughs> something new every day. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, the context to that, like you said, in current everyday life is, is really interesting because you see stories in the news about 
some CEO or president of a company was recorded saying some, mm-hmm. you know, negative thing in the privacies of his own home, and it makes you wonder what's the kind of boundaries there. Uh, where does it, the legal system and media kind of cross, and how does that affect everyone? That's a huge frontier that has to be addressed. Privacy and what it looks like in a world where everybody can record you all the time and where you're constantly putting your data into websites, companies, etc. Like that, that's huge. <laughs> that is a, a, a very important question that both governments and corporations and people are going to have to start answering over the next few years or already are working on it. Only reality of it is that people are willing to sacrifice their privacy. When you look at the Cambridge Analytica thing, it was more or less people giving permission to mm-hmm. for Facebook to give their information out to Cambridge Analytica. Something I thought was interesting recently was that Apple blocked Facebook from using their biometrics, so their face, facial recognition on all their products. And I was like, that's a huge win for privacy because biometrics are so unregulated. Yes. And it's one of the highest forms of security. Yeah. We Um, are willingly giving our information to all sorts of devices, but where does it stop and who can have it? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to touch on this. Um, It just kind of popped up, but a lot of our listeners are obviously in that college age range. And one thing you hear about is uh, doing study abroad Mm -hmm. and, you know, traveling while you're in college. So a lot of kids are thinking, I can't afford this. There's not enough time to mess with my degree plan too much. What are some pros and cons you tell students looking to, you know, travel or do study abroad programs? Um, Just get your perspective on it. Because from what I've heard, everyone I've talked to about it has pretty much loved it or Mm -hmm. had positive experiences. So what do you think is a good time to take advantage of those programs? And what's the time where you think they maybe shouldn't or look at different options? I don't know when the best time is to... I'm a big fan of gap year, which a lot of other countries do, that you go abroad or you do something for a year before you go into college. Because I think we've got a lot of people that have been sold into this idea that you have to spend a ton of money to get a degree that no longer guarantees you a job post-graduation. And so taking a year to do something, travel, work, whatever, gives you a different perspective right off the bat about how you're going to approach your education. But beyond that, like traveling abroad specifically, if you can do a study abroad, if you do it, I mean, I'm a huge fan of it, of course, but I think you should be try as much to not be the student abroad and to really live in the culture and pay attention to the culture because it's so eye-opening. I mean, just for me, I lived in 200 square feet. Um, I went from a house of 2,000 square feet to a flat of 200 square feet. You know, you come back and you go, I don't need all this stuff. I lived for a year without all this stuff. I mean, I had boxes that I didn't open. I was like, I don't know. I haven't opened them for three years now. I don't even know what's in it. I obviously didn't need it because I haven't looked for it in all that time. So, I mean, that just that alone, if you think about a career path, if you don't need stuff, you suddenly can make a significant amount less and still be fulfilled. So that gives you some freedom about how you look at the world. Um, I mean, for me, too, having a transit system, that was uh, amazing. So now I can talk about why it matters to have transit. But I had not grown up in cities that had transit like that in London. So just a bunch of different things about how you how you have to live or what you think you have to have or what you think you have to do changes when you see that, I mean, even like wealthy people in London live in teeny tiny spaces and they don't have a ton of stuff. They just don't, that's not how they think. That's not, that's just not part of their culture. They're not materialistic in that way, the way that Americans tend to be more. I mean, we're changing obviously, but yeah, it was, it was, it was fascinating uh, and especially to talk to people from all over the world. I had a, I had a, I had a friend who was interviewing. So, so in the bar in England, 
the lawyers, right? There are very few women. There are very few minorities. And she was an Iraqi woman. So, and she was Jewish too. There you go. So mm-hmm. Jewish, Iraqi, and um, female. And she got asked in an interview what that perspective, how that impacted her work. And I was thinking Title VII would pretty much not let that question ever be asked in America. Like the way it was phrased was so... She called me up afterwards. I said, I can't believe somebody asked you that. It would never be asked in an interview here. But that's just not like they don't have that legal protection. or And it was a totally normal question for them to ask. Fascinating to me how different that stuff is. What was Title VII exactly? Oh, like uh, fair employment or things like ty- like not being able to ask religious discrimination, things like that. Okay. So did they ask her that as far as hiring, like as a hiring process? Yeah, it was or? in an interview process. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's so, I mean, just to hear her perspective, you know, outside of the employment, you know, situation. Was yeah, really if you were hanging out, just talking to people, but yeah. In employment, though, mm. <laughs> because it, specifically they asked her how it would, it would affect her as an employee, like in her work, not like, does it bring diversity to the company? It was, it was phrased backwards, if that makes sense. I see. Do you think that it's a unique thing to the UK and maybe even Europe as a whole, as far as being more open with those types of questions and uh, not really, you know, layering it with a lot of fluff or having those protections? Or do you see that in other societies and cultures too? I think that it's really hard to evaluate other cultures or societies' rules because as an outsider. Mm-hmm. Because I, I would listen, when I was living in England, to their, well, I shouldn't even say there, because it was all different countries' viewpoints on our system and our Supreme Court or our president or our whatever, and they didn't understand the infrastructure or, or why this doesn't work that way or why the president can't just sign us up to something on his own that it has to be ratified by Congress. So so from the outside, it's I'm more operated from, well, it's really interesting that that question can be asked here and it wouldn't be asked at home. But I don't always know why uh, because there's all these other things that are going on that are historical or cultural that I just don't have access to because it's it's just not a touch point for me so i i spend a lot more time just thinking huh so that's that's okay like i mean for example like germany has really strong hate speech laws and it makes a whole lot of sense when you look at historical context there but for us when you look at how we were founded like freedom of press free speech was something that was very 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 important so it's just i think it's more interesting than good bad whatever you just know. taking it in as a whole and, and seeing how that applies to everything in general, basically. Mm-hmm. Taking you back to more of your college years and transition years, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced and what were some of the things that were most helpful? So, mm-hmm. for example, did you go out and network? Did you find a mentor? What did you do to kind of figure out what you wanted to Did you even know what you wanted to do? I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I started out as a broadcast journalism major, took one class and got bored. So switched to PR instead. And then I, I thought I wanted to be a journalist, but they didn't make any money at all. And I was always taught to be practical. I thought that maybe law school would make sense. But in college, I mean, it's funny because I, I just, I feel like I always was working. I worked most of college uh, a lot and it just always was on the plan. You got to do this. You got to get this done. You've got to get the grades. You've got to graduate. You've got to go to graduate school. You've got to this perpetual win, win awards, win scholarships, work really hard. I don't even know. So I didn't have any fun. <laughs> and um, I don't know that that's a good way to do things. And I say that all the time now that, you know, there's a balance. And I was so driven 
to achieve. And, and half the time I was driven to achieve things that weren't even things I had chosen. Not, I don't want to say somebody for, nobody picked my major for me. Nobody said, I won't pay for college if you don't do X, you know, but there's still these, all, all these ideas of what you need to be and how to do it. So I look back and think I would have done something maybe totally different if I hadn't been so focused on this pathway. Um, even though I didn't exactly know what it was, I just knew I had to get my grades, get my degree, get my graduate degree, that kind of thing. So did you go right from your undergrad into your graduate degree? Almost. I went, um, I graduated early from college because I wanted to get married. Don't recommend that. Anyone <laughs> listening? Um, <laughs> and uh, Getting married or graduating early to get married? Graduating early to get married. Okay. <laughs> very young. Unless you really know what you're doing. And um, so I was out for about nine months before I started law, law school. And the, I, I mean, even that small break was huge because there was a huge difference between the people that went straight through. By the time they hit third year of law school, they were done. Like they were so fried from school. Um, they had, they had just, they just didn't care anymore. Whereas any, anybody who'd taken even a year or two between had a whole different perspective on graduate school. And I don't know if that's, um, I don't know if that's specific to law school or if that's true of any kind of graduate program, but I always recommend that people take a break between the two if they can. I mean, unless you're in one of those programs, like a five-year program where you get your four-year degree and your master's altogether, um, that might be the one exception to that. But get take some time between one and the other if you can. So then graduating from graduate school, what were the next steps that you took? Like, did you find mentors? How did you find oh. support? And how did you find direction and really what you wanted to do? I think mentor. I, I always struggle with the word mentor because I just learned from environment more than anything. Not that people didn't help me. I was just paying attention to whoever I was interacting with. And I had a, I was really fortunate that the job that I got right out of undergrad was a very small um, strategy consulting firm owned by a woman. Uh, and she just took me under her wing and taught me all sorts of stuff, like threw me into board meetings with really big companies when I was 21. And I remember thinking at one point, what am I doing here? How did I, how did I get on the other side of a two-way mirror and a focus group in Chicago with vice presidents for like a major corporation? I, I don't know how that happened. She was really, really, really helpful. And I mean, I, you know, I, I try, I listen to my dad a lot, but I was very much a pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I can do this myself. I can solve the problem myself. So learning to network was a much later skill set for me because I really thought as long as you get good grades and you win the trophies and whatever, people are just going to take a look at your resume and say, or if you interview well, fine. But that's, I, that's just not how it works. You really do need to have people in your corner and know people. And nine times out of 10, a decision is going to be made based on a personal relationship, not based on some resume that gets dumped on somebody's desk randomly. It's going to be somebody saying, hey, I need you to talk to this person. They're really great. So we do see a lot of that advice out there as far as having those personal connections to help you either decide on a career path or, you know, find different job opportunities with obviously technology playing a huge role in today's job market with larger job searching boards and things like that. Do you see any validity with um, recent college graduates or anyone just doing the throw a bucket of paint at the wall and see what sticks as far as applying to hundreds of different applications? And yeah, I'd say that 
it's not a great strategy. And and because you've got technology available to you, you can you can find a way to connect with somebody in any company that you're trying to access. I mean, you can do it through something like Twitter or LinkedIn or I, I talk all the time. I, I I mean for formal mentorship, I was mentoring a um, former Teach for America fellow who's a teacher here in, in town for a while and he, he like he just rocks LinkedIn. Like, it's amazing what he's done on LinkedIn. So anytime anybody asks me about it, I'm like, hey, can I connect you to him on LinkedIn? Because he's already, like, knows all these people somehow through digital networking. And so any way that you can have a one-to-one connection with somebody who's going to be making a decision is infinitely better than being in the in the pile and and doing things randomly. There's just no reason to do anything randomly this day these day these days. You can find so much data on anything you're trying to figure out. And you can find out who the, what their favorite sports team is and you can find out all sorts of stuff. So you might as well do that. <laughs> it takes a little bit more work. Yes, you should personalize cover letters. Yes, you should personalize resumes. But the best thing to do is to have somebody else say, hey, this person's awesome. I want you to meet them because uh, I'm going to make time for anybody that I know. If they say I need you to sit down with so-and-so, I will. And I might not have I might not have anything. To, I don't hire people right now. So, But I do pay attention and go, oh, I remember I did this just a few weeks ago. So I had had coffee with somebody. Somebody connected me with them, saw something come up that reminded me of them, sent it through to them. I hadn't talked to them in like a couple months, but that's the best way to do. I think that's the best way to do it. What would some of your advice be for younger people graduating college? Um, maybe they are doing their undergrad. Maybe they're graduating from their graduate degree or considering going on to grad school. What is your advice? Work like actual have jobs, even better. I mean, internships fine, but if you can actually have a job where you actually work and you are actually responsible for something, no matter what that job is, I think a lot of times we downplay the value of things like wait staff or reception or whatever we call entry-level jobs, whatever you want to call them. I don't know. You learn so much in those jobs and you are responsible for so many things and you have somebody who can talk about what you do and how you do it in a direct and tangible way that professors can't really talk about. Um, And depending on how an internship is structured, you might not have been able to have those opportunities. And honestly, the smaller the company the more opportunity you're going to get. It can be frustrating because you're figuring out how to order toner for the printer, but also doing the social media and also going to meetings. I mean, but you learn so much in those environments that are actual tangible things. And I, and I, that's, I think it's opposite of what a lot of people say, but I know that every, my, I mean, I've only had one real job job because then I went and I started my own company, but I got hired there because of the tangible things that I could do, like make appointments and answer the phone and all that stuff. Not because I had a college degree and not because I knew how to do various writing things or whatever. Now that came up once I was in the position, but I was hired because somebody had a need to fill and I could do the technical things they needed done. Um, So I think that's a really important thing that often gets overlooked. Obviously, just from talking to you and seeing the impact you have on the community, you know, the transition you made into kind of digital media and, you know, communications and everything like that has been successful. You seem very happy with where you are. Was there any kind of like friction or stress you had moving from law into, you know, a more creative industry, so to speak? Because personally coming from an Asian background, we have kind of jokingly refer it to as a the Asian trifecta, you know, your parents want you to be a, a doctor, a lawyer, engineer. And if, you know, if it's not one of those three, then, you know, no, it's not allowed. So mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of younger people nowadays, um, 
face that struggle of do I want to do something that's really practical and I know it's going to have job security or do I want to do something that I'm really passionate about? Yeah, those are really (laughs) good questions. I mean, it all depends on, I think what people have to do is figure out what they want out of life, not what they want to do for a career because those, that question can supersede the other one. Um, So if what you really want to do is be outdoors all day long, you probably don't want to be a lawyer. I mean, you're probably not going to be happy because you're going to be stuck inside office rooms and conference rooms. And so figuring out what it is that really motivates you, feeds your soul. And and you don't have to do something for work that feeds your soul. Like passion and purpose are two important sides of an equation. But sometimes your passion, if it's your work... It can, it can taint that passion and make it not something that you love anymore if you now have to monetize it and have to deliver on schedule or something like that. So I think sometimes passion gets talked about too heavily. I mean, you shouldn't hate what you do every day. That's miserable. But I don't think you have to necessarily find your fulfillment through your work. If, if your work pays for your passion on the side, then great for that too. But what you don't want then is you don't want a 90 hour work week where you can never go do the thing that you're interested in. So there's all these balancing factors. And I just don't think we talk about that enough at all when we're talking about going to college or what our career paths are, what it looks like. We're like, this is a job and we want this job and this job pays a lot of money or this job is in this place or this job does the thing I like to do and never really think about, well, okay, I like what I do, but I'm doing it for 90 hour weeks. That's miserable. Or I'm always on call and I need a break and I'm not going to get a break. Or um, it's not prestigious enough, but so what? I'm really happy. Like that's the stuff people have to figure out for themselves. And I don't think that there's one size fits all or there's one path. Um, I personally hated big firm law and couldn't imagine doing it no matter how much they paid me. I don't know. Maybe they didn't offer me enough. I'm sure I have a price point. Um, but those are, I mean, really things people should think about because there's a lot of different ways to calibrate your life that has meaning and purpose for you. And they don't always have to be through work. Just don't be miserable at work. It's kind of funny that you said that because it seems like such a logical explanation and reasoning behind it, but you either hear one end of the spectrum, which is no matter what, just go for what you're passionate about Mm -hmm. or just do the smart thing and get that high paying degree. And A lot of people just don't think about having that balance, you know, even though you do see articles on work-life balance, you don't really see articles on, I guess, a slightly different side of the spectrum, which is passion and profession. And I think part of the problem is that people as a whole, we as a society have not fully adjusted to the opportunities available in a digital economy. And so a lot of the get whatever high paying degree job, whatever, that's kind of more of an old school way of thinking as if there's a scarcity economy where only so many people are going to have these degrees, only so many people are going to have these jobs, so you go do that. As opposed to a creator economy where, I mean, look at the different things that spring up with creator markets. And like, who knew that you needed like bespoke dog collars and stuff like that, but people can sell them and they can create a community around that because of things like the internet didn't always, that wasn't always easy. It wasn't always easy to find your, I talk all the time about this woman who makes, I don't even know her name, but she makes angel wings, like full scale mechanical feather covered angel wings and she makes them for movies and she makes them for cosplayers and how in the world would you ever find enough buyers for that to have a career in just here like if you imagine you starting up in Colorado Springs 30 years ago but now you can absolutely find a market if you want to so 
I think some of the advice is outdated or isn't taking into account the opportunities that exist, but also that it's really hard to cobble together like three and four jobs. Like the whole side hustle concept, great, except it's really hard when it's tacked on to a primary job. And and I don't think, I really don't think we've got wrapped our brains around what the workforce looks like now and what a career path looks like now when, I mean, all of them could be gone in 10 to 15 years, depending on what technology does, how people choose to live moving forward. So continuing along the lines of new industries, I think it's a really exciting time now for marketing as a whole, just seeing the rise of different influencers and how they're monetizing their brand. And five, 10 years ago, you kind of saw the introduction of things like you know, YouTube and ad revenue and making money that way. But now you're getting people who are just getting a brand and a following and you're just getting people to donate money to them for whatever content they're creating. Like you said, whether that's just making videos or writing blogs or just doing lifestyle things. So what are some of the new exciting trends that you like to pay attention to in in media, digital marketing, marketing as a whole? And how do you keep up with such a rapidly changing environment? (laughs) I read a lot. Um, But also, I think it all comes down to people. And I say that over and over again, that none of this stuff is designed for marketing or for advertising. It's designed to connect people. So any people who can figure out how to connect with other people, whatever that mechanism is, are going to be fine. People who dehumanize processes, products, whatever, are going to increasingly find it difficult to survive in in our economy, in this global economy where we care about doing good, where we care about authenticity, where we care about transparency, Um, And because people can have access to that information now, you can't really, like you said, the the CEO who gets recorded saying something, you really can't get away these days with as much of some of the bad corporate behavior we used to see or the lies in advertising like big tobacco or whatever. The flip side of that is if we're not responsible digital citizens, it is also easy to bury the truth in a sea of a bunch of lies. Not one lie, but a bunch of them coming from a bunch of different directions. So I think the trends are very much towards, um, I mean, I'll use the word conscious capitalism, social impact, businesses that have a purpose and they know why they do what they do and they do it well um, and create relationships, two-way relationships, not one-way relationship of broadcasting, but actually listening to the markets that they serve, consumers, fans, whatever. I think we're going to have to stop using these terminology. I I think we're going to have to stop saying markets or customers. I think we're going to have to start saying fans and participants and community um, because I think that's going to be increasingly what differentiates companies products services is do they have a fan base a community base so a lot of people in the traditional frame of mind uh, kind of the old school like you mentioned you know see technology and social media as kind of the death of social interaction and connecting with people but obviously you you take a slightly different approach to it so can you speak a little bit on that and how do you use one to enhance the other yes i love this topic (laughs) (laughs) i honestly believe that digital media has given us the ability to connect in ways we've never had before and to seek to interact with people that we would never ever cross paths with in other circumstances and it has allowed people to build these very interesting businesses or interesting communities um, across global across the globe across national boundaries um, based on a common interest a common passion a common concept 
And, and what you see is as these communities develop digitally, they often take them into real life, into convention in a specific place or meeting when they're passing through a town or any number of ways that you actually go from the digital space to uh, a public space, a physical public space. The, the problem with the digital world is that it can also be used by not so good people um, to accomplish not so great goals. Uh, because it's not filtered. It, there isn't, there are no gatekeepers anymore. And so I, I strongly believe that we have to start talking about this more about how do we use it purposefully? How do we, how do we make sure that we're living an integrated life, that we're online? Yes, but we're also offline. And how are we interacting offline? And how do we take something from the digital realm into the physical realm that is beneficial to all people or to your community, whatever you want to define that as? And we, I mean, I say this, it's been, this, this technology is mature enough that we should have thought about this before, but we're not. <laughs> and, and we've seen it in things like election cycles and fake news and all this other stuff that here are these things happening and everybody's reacting to them instead of going, wait a minute, I'm actually part of this. Every time I click something, every time I read something, every, you know, share it, like it, whatever, I'm transmitting that. And I have a choice about whether I transmit that or not. And I can choose to use these technologies for good. I can choose to use them mindlessly, which often will reinforce something that's not so great. Or I can, I mean, if you're really, you know, Machiavellian or whatever, you can use it to do something not great. Because it's a lot easier if you're willing to lie. Nobody, how, how are people going to fact check you? So it's complicated. And I'm not exactly sure what the long term is going to look like if we don't start reclaiming these spaces as human spaces, even though they're they're digital. Kind of transitioning back to your experience and your growth throughout life. What have been some of the biggest failures that you've experienced and how have you learned from them? I don't like this question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, like I said, I was very path-driven, get all the things done. So I, it sounds egotistical, I don't mean it to, I really didn't fail. Like if I was going to get an A, I was going to get an A. If I was going to get a degree, I was going to get a degree. I was going to be the best employee in the history of employees. I was going to learn everything about what I was doing, which isn't a good thing. Like it's not a good thing to say that I really didn't fail because that means I didn't learn from, I mean, mistakes. I don't even like the words failure, mistake. I think like learning opportunities is really what they are. Um, Cause what is a failure? I mean, not achieving the thing you set out to achieve. Okay. But now it put you down this path instead. And now you're in a different space. So that is a hard question for me because I do think people need to experience all sorts of things. And so for me, the first time, and this is where I might cry now, um, the first time I really experienced failure was the failure of my marriage. And I didn't know what to do with that because I am a problem solver and I can fix things. And if you just do it, work hard enough, read enough, study hard enough, apply yourself enough, you can fix anything, right? And that's not always true. And so I had no framework to deal with that at all. And, and if I'd had more of the any kind of failures earlier in life, I would have had that resiliency to say, you know, look, you 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 bounce back, you figure this out, you will be okay, there's something else that's coming. So I, I really, I, I wish that we could rephrase everything about achievement and about failure into this is just a journey. 
and we're figuring this stuff out. Like even even achievements. I mean, the fact that we've determined that some things matter, as I'm using air quotes for those of you that are listening, um, that some things matter and other things don't matter, that it mattered that you got a scholarship because that makes you you're smart, or it mattered that you got a trophy because that means that you're successful. And in, in reality, so you got it out of the group of people that chose to to pursue that because it was important to them. What about this entire other group of people for whom that has no relevance or no significance? So I like I think we really have to rethink a lot of those things um, and look at it much more like what am I learning from this? So you see a lot of different forms of media, podcasts, uh, motivational speakers, um, entrepreneurs, that sort of thing, talking about failure as a learning experience. Obviously, the whole topic of failure has been popularized a lot in the last mm-hmm. few years, but. Going back to what you mentioned, for those people who are highly confident in their abilities and, you know, they come in with the attitude and belief that I'm going to accomplish this, you know, there's obviously something to be said about that, about having that belief in yourself. Uh, can you speak to a little bit, uh, speak a little bit more on that? And is that something you were kind of just grew up with innately or is that something you had to develop over time? I think it's probably my core personality. I'm just one of those people that wants to be the best, <laughs> whatever that is. I mean, now if I didn't care about something, I'd be like, I don't, I don't have to be the best at that. Like I hate running. I have no interest in ever being good at running. Um, I'm not going to be the best at that. I know you're a runner. So I assume you're doing the 10 mile for going to the guy. <laughs> I think I liked it, and then people commented on that on Facebook, and I'm like, no, 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 don't jump in on that. I don't want to do that. Um, so if I didn't care about something, I wouldn't apply myself to it. But if I did, I was going to learn how to do it. And I think I've just always been that way. But I also think it's really important to to note that a lot of times, and I'm not speaking for everybody, but when you look at people that have this like track record of doing everything really, really well or whatever, like a lot of times that's compensating for a deeper, like I'm not good enough or I'm not – I have to continually prove myself. And so I am very conflicted when I talk about things like that because, yeah, of course, it was great. Look, at I've got these degrees and I have this company and I get to do this stuff and I can't say that any of that's bad. It comes from a lot of – it took me a long time to be comfortable in what I did and not having to do down this path or prove this thing or and recognizing that I don't always have to push the hardest. It's okay to take a break periodically it's okay to um, not know what you're doing next every once in a while. Like those things aren't bad things. And I, you know, I say now I'm like, I'm so lost in personal stuff. I do business all day long. It's just a season <laughs> and this stuff comes and goes. And if you, if you're, if you have a lot of difficulty pushing yourself, you should probably figure out a way to do that. If you're pushing yourself all the time, you should probably figure out how to take a break. I mean, a lot of it has to do with what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses. And I I feel like we idolize certain character traits that are not always the best character character traits in certain circumstances, in certain places. I say all the time, like when I look at resumes and I see like a 2.5 or something GPA, I want to be like, did you have a lot of fun? Like, I mean, for real, did you? Because if you were doing other things, you might be a people person. Like, you might be the social chair for your fraternity or something like that. And that's where you focused all your efforts. And you might need to be an event planner, not an accountant or whatever you went to school for. I mean, you know, I don't know. Because very rarely do people not do anything with their time. They're doing something else with their time that wasn't invested into school or whatever it was. 
And that something else might be the thing that really is what they're going to be amazing at or already good at or already passionate about. They just haven't thought about it yet because nobody said that that was a job you could have or a thing you could do. When you look at the bigger picture of what people are doing, everybody's got something that they do amazing or that they're really interested in or that they can drive a conversation about and figuring that out instead of going, well, wait, sorry, I'm not going to talk to you because you have a 3.72 instead of a 4.0. Bye. How did you know? (laughs) (laughs) is that really yeah i just guessed your your gpa (laughs) (laughs) you know you're you're found wanting because you're not a 4.0 no so transitioning more into bullet questions recommend one resource that is helpful for you in everyday life okay i'm a journaler i cannot make sense of my world without journaling so i have to write down and then i can look back at where i've been and what I've changed or haven't changed, that's that's one of my ways of making sense of things. I think that's great. It's very helpful for processing, for sure. Even for people that don't regularly journal, making a habit of doing that once a week or even once a month, looking back on that at the end of the year, you're like, wow, this is my progression. Yes, it's amazing. And to see patterns and trends and places that you've actually really changed something about what you wanted to change. Recommend one book. Okay, I just read Like War. I read a bunch of books recently, but Like War is about the weaponization of social media, and it is fascinating. It's written by two, I think, defense experts, and it it, it mostly focuses on defense, but it ranges through all the different social media movements over the past 10 years and makes the argument that we really do need to be paying attention to what we're doing in these spaces because wars are being fought in these spaces right now. Okay, Lauren. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today with us. This is a really interesting conversation and I wish we had another like two or three hours to, to deep dive into everything, but share one parting piece of wisdom with us. Uh, tell us a good way to connect with you and then we'll say goodbye. My favorite way to connect is actually Twitter. <laughs> and my handle is just my name at Lauren Hug. So, but I'm, I'm findable almost anywhere on LinkedIn or Facebook or my email is lauren at hugspeak.com. So feel free to connect. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is John Mark. And this is Brent signing off. I hope that all of y'all got as much out of this episode as Brent and I did. Lauren dropped so many value bombs and there were so many interesting things. And like Brent said in the episode, if we could have had two to three more hours, I don't think it it still would have been enough time. Um, She had so many interesting ideas and concepts based around marketing. And I really loved how she talked about the connection between technology and media and the personal connection and space as well. And just kind of wrapping my brain around that I I needed a couple seconds to process and it's definitely something I'm going to have to go back you know tonight and tomorrow and in the future and really just deep dive into it and explore it more be sure to like and follow us on Facebook to stay up to date on all of our future episodes Uh, we have a few new things coming in regards to the type of content and media we're going to be presenting so stay tuned for that in the coming months and also make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever listening platform you use. And thank you to all of our listeners that share our episodes on social media. We really do appreciate it. Be sure to check back every first and third Tuesday of the month for a new episode of Attitude Check. We look forward to having you back next time.